Amen, amen. We're going to have a seat, and I would invite you to get your Bibles out uh, and join me in the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 22. Uh, actually, 22 and 23 is where we're going to be this morning uh, as we're continuing through this sermon series through the book of 1 Samuel and, and this uh, searching for a king. And as you're turning to 1 Samuel 22, uh, we got a lot of real estate to cover, so let's just get right to it here uh, this morning. Uh, what is it? Here's the question for your church. What is it? I want you to think about what are the things that sustain you? What sustains you? What preserves you? What holds you fast? What allows you to persevere and to press on in your life? And as you think about that, maybe you're thinking about certain disciplines. Maybe you're thinking about certain goals. Maybe you're just like, I'm just afraid of certain things. Right? Maybe it's fear. Maybe there's a purpose. There's all kinds of motivations that we could speak to around the different things that sustain us. But here's what I'm really curious for us and, and want us to consider is we're thinking about what is it that sustains me? Where in that order of things, as you started thinking about different items that is sustaining you, where was God's word with respect to other things that came up? Was God's word first? Was there a primacy to it? And eventually like, oh yeah, maybe God and his word sustains me. Or maybe you're like, oh man, I didn't even think about that because the text that we're coming to today and it continues to unfold really this sinister drama of Saul and his pursuit of of David and attempting to harm and eliminate David but but what we're going to see unfolding more uh, than that is how God's word is leading and sustaining uh, God's people specifically David in what's happening here this morning. And inasmuch as that's true for David, it is also true for you and I. And so here's where God's word is going to lead us. This idea right here that God leads and sustains his people by and through his word. Let me say that again. That God leads and sustains his people by and through his word. And so loved ones, if that's true, and it is, then we have to be people that are led by and sustained by God and his Word, uh, And this is how God is going to drive that or impose his word upon us this morning, is that we would be people of the word. And so before we get into the text or go any further, I think we'd do well to pause. Let's pray uh, and submit ourselves here to the Lord. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day. God, we thank you for your word, uh, God, and, and, and the place uh, that your word has over us. And God, we pray right now that in this moment that uh, we would come before you in humbled submission, that we would be willing to sit under uh, your word, to hear all that you have for us. Uh, God, for you to accomplish your purposes uh, by and through your word, through your spirit, doing your work uh, in your people here this morning. So God, as we sit under your word, as we're submitted to your spirit, uh, maybe we need to be encouraged or challenged, con uh, convicted or exhorted or a host of other things that may be true of us. Uh, but God, we're giving ourselves over to you, asking you to have your way. And as always, we want to pray for another church in the area and this morning. God, we're praying for Ciudad de Gracia and for Abiel Diaz and praying for that body of believers uh, and the work that you'd be doing in them uh, in Albuquerque in the same way that we desire that you'd be working in and through us. And so God, have your way. Open, uh, open our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our hearts to know and to understand all that you have for us. And we pray this in your name and all God's people said, Amen. All right, well, the title of the message this morning is God's Sustaining Word. 
It's God's sustaining word. Uh, and before we get into the text, let me just make one quick note, because you're going to hear me talk a lot about God's word this morning. You're going to see it in, 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 in note or bullet points and uh, uh, sub points and all this stuff. Uh, but, but sometimes we do this thing where we separate or we divorce God's word from the person of God. Loved ones, don't do that. Right? Because God's word is derived from the person of God. They're, they're indistinguishable. Right? And so the word of God is connected to the person of God. We love the Bible because we love the one who wrote the Bible. Uh, and so the word of God is tied to the person of God and vice versa. Maybe this is a helpful way to think about it. If my wife were to send me a note or to send me a text or send me an email, I don't look at the words and separate that from the person and the relationship. I understand it in light of the relationship and the person that exists. And so as we come to God's word and we're seeing the different ways that God's word is sustaining his people, don't think, well, that the Bible does that. But no, no, God is doing that because God's word is tied to God's person. So with that, let's get into this. Uh, and, and chapter 22 and 23 kind of falls under a variety of ways that God's sustaining word uh, is, is impacting and intersecting with uh, our lives. Uh, and, and we see it show up in these different scenes uh, that, that happen here in these couple of chapters. So let's begin with this thought right here, that God's word forms God's people. This is what we see in the first five verses of chapter 22. God's word forms God's people. Look at your Bibles. Let me read verse 1 and 2. It says this. David departed from there, remember he was uh, in uh, Gath with the Philistines, and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul, gathered to him, and he became the commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And, and so the first thing that we see here is that God's word is forming God's people. And what we see in verse 1 and 2 is that God draws his people by his word. God gathers his people. God brings together his people by his word. Now, now this group is drawn to David. He's the one who becomes their commander. And you might say, okay, well, they're drawn to David, but how are they drawn by God's word? Well, if you remember last week in chapter 21, where David was trying to do it all on his own, what we're going to see in a moment is that David is very much back in this place of being led by and directed by God and his word. And we'll get to that here in a moment. But let me just talk briefly about this group and some of the implications of, of this ragtag group of misfits that David has gathered together because it doesn't seem like much, right? Like if you're like, I'm going to build a kingdom, all right? Who are you bringing on your team? Well, I want all who are in distress. I want people who are loaded with debt and give me some guys who are bitter in soul. Like, yeah, that, that'd be a great team. Like no one builds a team with those people. And yet these are the ones that God is drawing to David. Here's what you got to understand. This group of people is going to become the nucleus of David's kingdom. In verse 3, we're going to be introduced to, a, or, or maybe it's, uh, sorry, in verse uh, 5, we're going to be introduced to Gad, the prophet. Gad is going to be a prophet who's going to live and minister alongside David for the entirety of his life. At the end of chapter 22, we're going to be introduced to Abiathar. Uh, the priest, who's going to be a priest who's going to minister through the entirety of David's life. A lot of these men here are going to be some of the faithful men that are going to fight with David through the entirety of his life. And so there's some, God is doing something. He's doing something in gathering these people together. But this is not a glorious group. It's not a glamorous group. We don't look at these people and go, yeah, that's where all the power brokers and influencers are. It's a band of misfits, but it's part of a kingdom that's going to carry an eternal legacy. 
And there's someone else in the Bible who does something just like this, isn't there? This is what Jesus will do later. He's going to grab a group of misfits, and he's going to produce an eternal kingdom that has an eternal legacy with a group of total misfits. In fact, by the time you get to Acts chapter 17, what they're saying of of the disciples and, and, and those that Jesus has ministered to is that they've turned the world upside down. And so, loved ones, here's what you have to understand. The formation of God's people happens spiritually. It happens biblically. It doesn't happen socially, which is why God is not looking for the highly skilled and the highly talented. God wants the people who will follow and obey his word because God chooses to form his people by his word. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 5. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit because to them belongs the kingdom of God. Paul says this in in 1 Corinthians 1, that it's not the wise, it's not the powerful, it's not the noble that God chooses, but who is it? It's the foolish and the weak and the low that God chooses. So we just got to be honest about who we really are. Loved ones, you and I, we're just not as great as we'd like to think. Because God chooses the foolish, the weak, and the low. And so maybe it might be helpful to just turn to the person next to you and be like, you're not as great as you think you are. You're actually pretty weak and low. Tell them that right now. Just tell them they're weak and low. I'm cracking up. Some spouses are like, I'm not even going to turn to look at my husband or wife. I'm just not going to hear it from them. I don't know what happened walking into church, okay? I'm just, just, but, but, but this idea, this idea that we're not, right? We're, 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 we're not a part of God's kingdom because we're great. Inherent in the gospel is, is that we're not great, right? God doesn't draw us because we bring so much to the table. God draws the low and the weak and the foolish because God is great and God is forming his people by his word. Praise God for that. And God help us that we would be drawn by God's word as well. So God's word is forming his people. God draws people by his word. But notice also in verses 3 through 5, a part of the formation is that God directs his people by his word. So the, the, these guys gather to David. And then look at what it says next. It says, David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you. He's concerned for his mom and dad. I don't trust what Saul's going to do. So he goes to Moab. Why Moab? We don't totally know. Although remember David's great-grandmother Ruth was a Moabite. So maybe there's some connections there. Uh, Then just a a safe place for his mom and dad. But look at this next line. You might want to underline this next line. Till I know what God will do for me. You see what David's saying? He said, hey, I, I, I know mom and dad need to be hanging out over here, and I need to figure out what it is that God has for me next. What's the direction? Or what's the command? What is he calling me to? What does he have for me? Right? He's being directed by God and his word. And then we see it again in verse 4 and 5. Right? He leaves him with the king of Moab. And then look at verse 5. It says, then the prophet Gad said to David. Now, loved ones, what is the job of the prophet? It's to speak on behalf of God. Right? A prophet speaks, they're the messenger, they're the mouthpiece of God. So when Gad comes to David and says, do this, he's not like, you know, I think this is a good idea. He's speaking at, on behalf of God. And so he says, do not remain in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. And so when it says David departed and went into the forest of Hereth, David's not just listening to Gad, David is being obedient and directed by God. Right now, we're in chapter 21, he had just this disastrous run of, I'm going to do my own thing and I'm going to trust in myself. He's like, that didn't work. I don't want to have to be crazy again to get myself out of a situation. I'm just going to submit myself to the Lord and what he has for him. 
and he's returned to this place of trusting and following God's lead. David's essentially saying, I can trust God and I believe God, I can follow him uh, because God is directing his people by and through his word. Let me just ask you, will you allow God to direct you by his word? Are you will you choose to trust what it is that God is saying to you? Uh, even if your circumstances aren't favorable, even if they don't improve, Will you allow God's word to form you in the manner and in the way that God intended for it to accomplish? God's word forms God's people. One other note I want to make just real quick here with respect to this, that, that even though David has returned to a place of trusting the Lord, notice that his circumstances haven't really gotten any better. Right? He went from being crazy and trying to escape uh, from the Philistines, and now he's hiding in a cave, and now he's fleeing to, Ju to Judea, right? It, it hasn't gotten better circumstantially. What has changed is David's perspective, because now he's trusting in the Lord, not simply in what he can see. This is part of how God's word forms God's people. And God, help us that we would trust the Lord, uh, irrespective of what we can or cannot see. So God is leading and God is sustaining his people by and through his word. One of the ways he does that is God, God's word forms God's people. Now notice here in this second scene, uh, if, you, right, if you ever watch a movie, uh, you've got a scene and it'll fade out and then it just takes you in an entirely different place. Hey, here's, here's what's going on simultaneously in a different location. And the rest of chapter 22 moves away from David and now, now, now uh, it fades into Saul. And here's Saul in chapter 22, uh, and, and where God has formed by his word, and we saw that in verses 1 through 5, what we see now in verses 6 and following is where God's word is absent and how it becomes incredibly destructive, uh, that the absence of God's word destroys people. So let me read, I'm going to just walk us through verses 6 through uh, uh, probably verse 19, and then we'll walk back through and see some of the different destructive elements uh, that show up in uh, this part of the text with respect to the absence of God's word. So starting in verse 6, it says this, Now Saul heard that David was discovered and, the men, and men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the Tamaris tree on the height with his spear in his hand. That knucklehead just can't let go of the spear, right? And so there he is, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to the servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, well, the son of Jesse, that's David, but there's so much spite and malice in Saul's heart towards him, he can't even say his name. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that you have all conspired against me? He's like, is he paying you off? Like, why aren't you guys telling me what's going on? Why are you loyal to him and not me? He's a little whiny baby. No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. I love this line here. None of you is sorry for me. It's like, what are you for? What's your problem? You're the king. Get over it. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. And of course, that's not even true. Right? Saul's so delusional in his sin, he can't even articulate what's actually true. Which, loved ones, let that be a warning to you. And you get so deluded into sin, you can't even tell the truth. And that's where Saul's at. And so on the heels of him saying this, look at verse 9, it says this, Then answered Doeg the Edomite. Remember him from chapter 21, that ominous note? But he was there as David was with Ahimelech, and now it's all coming uh, into play and what he saw. And here's what he says. He says, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him, and he gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. 
And so Saul loses. He's like, call all the priests here, and we got to deal with this. And, and, and they bring him here. And here's what Saul says to the priest in verse 13. He says, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you've given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he's risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? And Ahimelech is like, oh, pump your brakes, buddy. That is not what's happened. That's not what's going on. You are not understanding what is going on. So let, let me just try to explain to you. And so Ahimelech starts by saying this in verse 14. He says, and who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? He's like, man, why wouldn't I help David? He's your guy. He's the most faithful guy you got. He's the captain of your body. Like, to not help him would be treasonous. And then he says this. Verse 15, is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? No. <laughs> Why do you think this hasn't happened before? And now Ahimelech begins to push against Saul. He says, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father. For your servant has known nothing of all of this, much or little. He's like, man, you are saying things that simply aren't true. This is not what happened. Now, in this moment, in this moment, right, if God's word has any presence in Saul's life, there's, okay, so, so, so help me understand. What am I misunderstanding? What's going on, right? And there's, there's, there's some clarity that begins to come. Uh, but God's word has no place in Saul's life. Look at verse 16. And the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. It's like, all right, you know what? I don't like what you said. I'm going to kill you. And then, verse 17, the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priest of the Lord because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. He's like, all right, kill him. But the guards are like, nah, I don't want anything to do with that. It says the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priest of the Lord. They're like, yo, I'm not going with you in that. Like, that's wickedness, and, and I don't want anything to do with that. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priest. You see the irony? Let me ask this Gentile to strike down the ministers and the priests of the Lord. And he did. Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priest, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. At Nob, the city of the priest, and he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. I mean, it's a sickening, repulsive act. And as we think about all that's happening here and all the different ways that this just gets kind of twisted and sorted, right, all of this is unfolding because the absence of God's word destroys people. Now here's three. We could do far more than three, but three uh, items specifically I want to just uh, touch quickly in the text uh, around this idea of the absence of God's word destroys people. First of all, make note of the destructive nature of his insecurity. But there's deep insecurity in Saul. He keeps talking about, why does no one disclose this? And why don't I know this? And why is this being hidden from me? And why don't I have more uh, information on this? And why aren't you more sorry for me? See, here's what's happened. Fear and self-pity have gripped Saul, and that has created a deep insecurity in him. And loved ones, what you have to understand is the presence of God and the presence of God's word in our lives is what creates security and confidence for us. 
Right? They remind us of our standing before God. They remind us of God's redemption of us. That, that, that's what's going to keep pointing us back to gospel hope. But when that gets removed, when that's ignored, when that's absent, when that gets isolated, we're isolated from it, what happens is it begins to stir up inside of us and fosters in us this deep sense of insecurity. And this is where Saul's at. Maybe this is where you're at. Maybe if you're honest, you look at your life and you, you just, man, I'm lacking confidence. Uh, I, I'm wrestling with this insecurity. I don't understand why these things are happening. The question is not, hey, how do I have more confidence? How do I get more bold? How do I get this figured out? Here's the question you have to wrestle with. What, 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 what element and what place does God's word and God's person have in your life? Because I'd be willing to bet when you, when you point out the areas of insecurity, when you're pointing out the areas where you lack confidence, I can say there's probably what's going on there is God is not speaking into your life on those items. Because when you let God speak, right, that's the place of security and confidence. And as we address these issues, as we, as we look at these things, it's the absence of God's word in our life. That's what stokes the insecurity inside of us. And that's what's going on with Saul. And maybe that's what's going on with you. Secondly, not only is it destructive in, in the nature of insecurity, but it's destructive in the nature of what I've termed here attempted sovereignty. That's right. We understand these things about attempted murder. Right, like let's say you go out and try to kill someone. I hope, I hope you're not planning on doing that. But if you try to do that, even if you're unsuccessful, that's such a wicked and heinous act that legally you're held liable and responsible for that. So even the attempt of that is, is punishable in a court of law. And I would argue that this is, this is just as insidious and just as wicked to attempt to position yourself in the place of God. Now, this, this has roots all the way back in the garden. You can go all the way back to Genesis 3 and you see this. But this is what Saul is doing here. He's trying to position himself as God. And so he wants to put the priest into service of himself and not of service of the Lord. And the problem for Saul is that he thinks he can be sovereign over his life. And maybe you've got a similar problem in your life as well. You think you can be sovereign. You think you can be in control. You think you can be the authority. You think you can be the, uh, the, the, the be-all and the end-all. Now, had God's voice had any place in Saul's life, this gets corrected when Ahimelech starts to speak. Because God actually was speaking to Saul, and he was speaking through one of his priests. He's like, man, first of all, you're, you're just wrong in your assertion. Second of all, uh, we had no idea what was going on. And third of all, of course we helped David. He's a faithful guy. You should know that. Saul doesn't want anything to do with that. And so instead of hearing, instead of repenting, he just chooses to kill the one who called him to account. Because Saul is positioning himself as the one to whom total allegiance lies. Loved one, just ask yourself, is there any place, any position in your life where you are attempting to live as if you are sovereign over that thing? Do you believe that you're entitled to certain information or certain knowledge or whatever it is, like, well, I deserve this, or I'm entitled to this, or I'm going to demand this. And here's what God's word will do. If you will let God speak into your life, it's going to put you right back in, in the rightful position in the rightful place to say to you, man, no, no, listen, this is who God is, and this is who you are, and you're, you just, you're just not entitled to some of that stuff. The destruction where God's word is absent destructive nature of insecurity, the destructive nature of attempted sovereignty. And then we see thirdly, I mean, there's just a wickedness and an evilness to this, no doubt. But, but I want us also to see the destructive nature of inconsistency. 
See, where God's word is absent, there is going to be inconsistency. And here's, here's what I think is wildly ironic about what we see going on here, is, is the, the, this assault on the priest is massively inconsistent with what God has laid out for, for a host of reasons. But I think most notably, you remember what happened back in, in 1 Samuel chapter 15? God told Samuel to do, or Saul to do what? He said, go destroy the Amalekites. And you were to destroy all of them? And all of their animals and all of their possessions, like all of it, wipe it all. And what happened? Saul got there and he's like, ooh, they got some nice stuff. Ooh, that's a really nice cow. I'd like to hold on. Ooh, look at that. She, we're going to hold on to some of this. right? And so, so, so here it's like, well, I'm going to hold on to that. So they spare Gentiles who live in rebellion to God. And now Saul is willing to let a Gentile obliterate and demolish the entirety of the priesthood in this community. See, it's wildly inconsistent. But this is, this is the problem when, when God's word is absent or ignored. What God's word does is it brings consistency in our living. It brings consistency in our thinking. It brings consistency in our conduct. But in its absence, there's no objective standard. It's like we're living in the time of the judges. Everyone does whatever's right in their own eyes. Which, by the way, that sounds an awful lot like the day and age you and I live in, doesn't it? Right, because there's an absence of God's word in the place of people's lives. And so we, we've got to come to terms with the grave consequences of what happens when we don't allow God's word to form God's people. Can you see the destructive reality that's unfolding here? Maybe you're even witnessing it in your life right now. Will you choose to make God's word and God's voice a priority in your life? God's word forms God's people. And the absence of God's word destroys people. But again, remember, God's, God, God's word is leading and sustaining, uh, his, or God is leading and sustaining his people by and through his word. And so you get to chapter 23, and this third scene begins to unfold. And what we see here is that God's people live by God's word. That God's people live by God's word. So the scene moves back to David. Actually, at the end of chapter 22, it moves back to David. And he escapes with Abiathar, uh, the one living priest left uh, from this slaughter. Uh, and, and notice what it says here. Let me read the first few verses of, of chapter 23. It says this. Now they told David, right, they're fleeing after the slaughter. Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Right, the threshing floors is where they'd harvest their grain. So, so this is an assault on their livelihood and their well-being, on top of the fact that it's just theft and, 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 and assault. It would have been really easy in that moment for David to go, bummer for those guys. We've kind of got our own issues going on over here. Uh, so hopefully the Lord can do something, but that's not really our problem. And really it's a great reminder for all of us, just because you got some issue in your life doesn't mean that God's not calling you uh, to demonstrate some level of care or concern or service of others. If anyone had an excuse to not do anything, it'd be David and his men. And yet, look at what happens. Verse 2, therefore David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? Hey, God, did you bring this information to me so that we would do something about it? Am I supposed to, are we, are we supposed to go? Are we supposed to do something? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. And it's almost, he's like, all right, guys, let's go. You heard. Verse 3, but David's men said to him, behold, we're, we're afraid here in Judah how much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? They're like, ah, uh, like we're already being hunted. I'm not sure we want to go attack a second nation and have them hating us too. Is this really a good idea? And look at what David did. I mean, he could have done a number of things. He, he could have said, guys, you got to trust me. Did you, did, I heard from God. He's like, no, no. All right. 
Let me have you hear from God. Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I'll give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. So God's people live by God's word. And what we see here in these first five verses is that we are ruled by God's word. We're to be ruled by God's word. Because the decision, the decision for, for, for David and these guys to go wasn't based upon what was convenient, wasn't based upon what was preferable, what was desirable. It was based on God's direction. God clearly told them to go. Now the guys, the, the rest of the men in Israel were like, eh, I'm not sure this is such a good idea. And what David did is he, he didn't say, hey, just trust me. Just believe me. Well, I got a word. He's like, all right, I'll let you hear from God too. And he took his men so that they could hear from God as well. Loved ones, this is how we help one another, is we keep returning people to the word of God. We want to be people who are consistently ruled by the word, where we're constantly asking, what does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible speak into this? How would God's word have us understand this? And so maybe you've got a kid uh, that comes to you, or maybe your spouse comes to you, or a buddy, or a friend, or a coworker, or a neighbor, like, hey, I'm trying to figure this out, or I don't know how to respond in this situation, or I'm kind of confused about this, or I don't really know what to do. The best thing we can do is say, what does the Bible say? How is the Bible leading us? Where we want to be biblical people. We're just saying, what, 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 what does God have to say? How would he be leading us? That's what David did. Hey, man, we don't think it's a good idea. All right, let's just see what God has. God, what do you want? Go. And then check out what happens, right? After he does this, the word, here's what the word does. It brought confidence and it brought unity. Right? All those guys are like, ah, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And God's saying, go, I'm going to give them your hand. And they're all like, all right, posse up, we're out, let's go. Because that's what the word does. The word brings confidence and unity. We don't do that. God's word brings that. And that's what it is to be ruled by God's word. Church, will you allow your life to be ruled by God's word? You're like, okay, what, what, what does that look like? How do we do that? Here's three things real quick of what it looks like to be ruled by God's word. First of all, we must consistently be in the word. I don't know how you're ruled by something if you're never paying attention to it, if you don't know what it says, if you're not familiar with it. Now, notice I didn't say that you have to know everything in the word. What I'm saying is we've got to be in it. Like it's just got to be a, a regular rhythm in our life where we're constantly hearing from the Lord. Secondly, we must be submitted to the word. That we actually do what it says. Here, let me ask you this. Who's in charge of your life? Are you in charge or is God in charge? And here's how you know God's really in charge. Go to a place in the scriptures with a text that you don't particularly like or that you find particularly difficult to follow, read it and then pay attention to how you respond. That's going to tell you who's in charge. Because if you read that and you start rationalizing or justifying, or hey, here's why this doesn't apply to me, you're just trying to be God in your life. And you're not sovereign, it's going to go poorly for you. But when you're willing to sit under the word and you're like, man, I don't necessarily like it, this is really hard, uh, but I want to be obedient, then you're just going to go forward. And you're going to be ruled by God's word because you're submitted to God's word. And then thirdly, thirdly, we must be willing to go to the word with others. And th th this really cuts two ways. So, 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 so part of that is that I'm willing to take others to the Bible. I'm not going to give you my wisdom. I'm not going to give you my insight. I'm not going to say, well, here's what I think. It's like, man, 
I'll tell you what, here, here's what God says in Romans 7. Or let, let, let's read about what happens here in 1 Samuel 23. Just gonna, here, here's what's in the Bible. And then the other side of this is when other people are telling us something maybe that we don't like, we don't agree, we can ask, hey, show me in the Bible where this is coming from. Or if they take you to the Bible where you're like, all right, that's great. Lead me to the Word, and then I'm going to follow it, right? Because we're going to be submitted to the Word. Ah, oh, God, help us that we would be ruled by God's Word. But notice also, not just that we're ruled by God's Word, but notice how this story unfolds here. Look at verses 6 through 14, that we're also rescued by God's Word. That God's word rescues, it preserves, it, 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 it spares us. And so here they go and they defeat the Philistines. And then look at what it goes on to say. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he'd come down with an ephod in his hand. Now the ephod was the priestly garment. Uh, and and uh, there's a couple of things with it that are really, really important. One of them would be uh, what's referred to as the Urim and Thummim. And these are two objects. We don't even totally know what they look like, but these were two objects uh, that were often used in the Old Testament to discern the specific will of God. Kind of, should we do this, yes or no? And, and in some way, God would speak to the priest and give clear direction on these items. And I think that's very much in view uh, with what's going on here. Uh, because what we see is Saul finds out that David's in Keilah, and he's like, great, he's in, a, he's in an enclosed city. We're going to go, and we're going to capture him. So they summon people to go get him. Uh, verse 9, David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. He's like, all right, let's, let's ask. Right? Let's ask the Lord. What does he want? Again, they're, they're being driven and directed by God's word. Verse 10, David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And God says, yep, he's coming down. Verse 12, then David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hands of Saul? And you're like, man, you just rescued them. Surely they wouldn't betray you. Oh, no, they totally would. Look at what it says. God said, yeah, they'll surrender you. And so David and his men just depart. And when Saul hears that they had departed, he gives up the expedition in verse 13. But what we see here, loved ones, is that we're rescued by God's word. That God's word rescues us from all manner of issues. It was God's word that preserved them. It was God's word that spared them. It was God's word that led them. It was God's word that prevented them from being harmed. Right? They, they, they weren't strategizing, well, here's how we're going to deal with them, or here's what we're going to do. Like, what should we do? Is this going to happen? Yes, they're going to come. Okay, should we leave? Yep. All right, we're out. The same is true for us. We're rescued by God's word. You might say, how are we rescued by God's word? How are we preserved? How are we spared? Here, let me try to illustrate this. I want you to just for a moment, I want you to think about what are the values that, 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 that are held up, that are um, given high regard and high esteem in our world today. Just think for a moment, what are some of the things? I'm not talking about biblically. I'm just talking about in our world, what are the things that tend to be held in high esteem? In fact, most of them, I'd argue, are not biblical values. If you think about that, I mean, some of the things that come to my mind, I think about a sexual licentiousness and a sexual liberty. I think about a diminishing value of life, whether it be tied to abortion or euthanasia. You think about the, that, that also plays out with the objectification of people, uh, probably most notably seen in pornography. You think about greed and materialism, and I got to get mine. Right, you think about self-sufficiency and self-idolatry. These are the things that most people in society go, these are really good things. These are the highest things. Loved ones, those things will demolish you. 
they will eat you alive. And so how does God's word rescue us? God's word rescues us by coming and giving us pathways and understanding by which how, how we intersect and engage with these. It gives us directives on why we avoid certain things. It, it, right, one of the things I like to say is when God says don't, he means don't hurt yourself. That, that, that's what he's saying. When God tells you don't do this, it's not because he's mean and he wants to make your life miserable. He's like, yeah, that's going to hurt you. Don't do it. That's what I tell my three-year-old all the time. Hey, you don't want to touch the hot stove. That's going to hurt. You're like, oh, what a jerk of a dad. I can't believe you do that. It's like, oh, no, what, what father wouldn't do that? Letting your three-year-old burn their hand. See, this is what God's word does, is it spares us from destruction and devastation and harm because it helps us to think rightly about things. God's word is, you ever seen like roads where they have roads blocked off and they've got those huge yellow and white signs like do not enter? You know what I'm talking about? God's word is, is a huge warning like that. When I was in high school, the, the neighborhood I grew up in, it was on the edge of town. Um, and, and where I lived was developed before I was born. Uh, but then they were developing a new neighborhood when we were in high school. And so it was kind of a hilly area uh, and, and kind of a rougher terrain. And so they'd build these really long driveways uh, kind of up and down these hills. And so they'd just done some really rough construction. Uh, and it's a Friday night. Me and a few of my buddies are out just like, well, what do you do? You live in a small town. And it's like, oh, let's go drive up those roads with those huge orange and white signs that say, do not enter. Surely nothing bad will happen. Right? Of course, you drive up this steep hill, and I just remember coming down the backside of it, and it's like the road just kind of fell off into a ditch. And so did my buddy's Jeep <laughs> with us in it. Right? No one harmed, but that was fun having to explain why we were muddy and it took us forever to get home and a, and a host of other things. See, this is what God's word does is it spares us from the harm and the danger. God's, God, God's saying, hey, listen, th this is not a road you want to travel down. This is not a place you want to go. It's not an area you want to be. This is going to harm you and hurt you. And so instead of being plunged headlong into the destructive values of this world, God, God's word offers a rescue to us. And that's what David is experiencing here. And then look at verse 14. It says this. It says, David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And then look at this next line. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Now, don't miss the incredibly profound nature of what's happening here in this verse. Because here's, here's what the Bible is, is helping us to understand. God was not shielding David from every difficulty and every hardship in his life. But what God was doing is he was delivering David from his enemy. And loved ones, the same thing is what God will do in your life and in my life. He is not going to shield you from every hardship. He's not going to make everything easy. Right? He's not going to say, oh, well, yeah, you're one of mine now. Nothing bad will ever happen. What God will do is he's going to deliver you from your greatest enemy, which is sin. Loved ones, this is the hope of the gospel. Not that, that, not that God makes all the hard things go away. It's that God delivers us from our enemy. That you've been delivered from the enemy of sin. That you've been rescued from the judgment and wrath that you rightfully deserved when you rebelled against Christ. But here's what we sometimes do. Sometimes we conflate the two. And we think what the gospel means is that God makes my life really easy and I'm really healthy and happy and nothing bad ever happens. That's not the gospel. That's not what's happening here to David, not even close to David. Right? He's hiding in a cave. And, and the Apostle Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 4. Here's what he says. He says, so we do not lose heart. Why? 
Though our outer self is wasting away. How's that for a chipper message? Loved ones, be encouraged. Your outer self is wasting away. Well, that's not very encouraging. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. Now listen to what he says next. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. See, God doesn't shield us from all trouble. God delivers us from our greatest enemy. And so what this means, right, what this means is when we look at hardship and struggle and difficulty in our life, that we can, we, we can have hope that God is using this to produce and, and prepare us for an eternal way to glory. And it means that the suffering is worth the temporary adversity because it produces an eternal glory. And let me just bottom line it like this. Your suffering, listen to me, your suffering, your hardship, your trial, your difficulty, it's not wasted, it's not worthless, it's not pointless. It's actually profoundly meaningful because God is using it to produce something far greater of eternal value. God does not promise to shield us from distress. But God does promise to deliver us from our enemy, which is what he's doing in David's life there in 2314. God's people live by God's word. Here's the final thing. Real quick, number four, that God's people are strengthened by God's word. That we're strengthened by God's word. Verse 15, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. And he was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And check out who came to meet him. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh. And I love this line right here. And strengthened his hand in God. You kind of have this sense that he meets David. And David's kind of fearful and afraid. And almost kind of shaking and trembling. And it's almost like Jonathan grabs him. And stabilizes him. And strengthens him. And how does he strengthen him? Well, look at what he says in verse 17. He says, do not fear. David could be like, are you nuts, man? Like, everyone's hunting me. What, what, what do you mean, do not fear? The hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. See, loved ones, what we see here, part of God's people are strengthened by God's word, is that we strengthen, strengthen one another with God's word. And this is what Jonathan did for David. He's strengthening David, not just with any word. He's actually strengthening David with the promises that God had already given to David. And this is how we strengthen one another. This is what good friends do for one another. That we remind them of the promises of God in and over their lives. More than a pithy word, more than a nice gift. For the person who's in the midst of struggle, the best thing we can give them is the promises of God. And this is how we should endeavor to strengthen one another by reminding them of the promises of God. So David, strengthened by Jonathan... And then the Ziphites are like, hey, it's kind of fun to betray David. We want a part of this. And so they get in on it too. So they go up to Saul in verse 19, and they're like, hey, David's hiding among us. Verse 20, come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down. And our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. They're like, hey, he's here. We'll hand him over. It's like, thanks a lot, guys. And so Saul's like, well, he's kind of a slippery guy, and he's kind of an elusive guy, kind of like a greased pig. Let's just make sure we can get him captured. Uh, and, and they begin to scheme, and you see this in verse 21 through uh, 26, and they're, they're scheming and they're plotting, and they're closing in on David, and closer and closer and closer until you get to verse 26. And it says this, Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain, and David was hurrying to get away from Saul, and Saul and his men, or as Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. You're like, oh man, this is going to end poorly. And yet here's what you've got to understand about what's happening here, is that God sovereignly sustains his people. 
God sovereignly sustains his people. Loved one, God is sovereignly sustaining you in the same way that God is sovereignly sustaining David. And you're like, well, man, it doesn't look like it. He's about to be captured. Well, we've got to read the rest of the text. Verse 27, a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. Well, that's really interesting. I wonder what prompted that. I got one idea. His name is Yahweh. That's what happened. So just like that, Saul leaves David. They go back to the Philistines. It says at the end of verse 28, Therefore that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of the En Gedi. See, God sovereignly sustains his people. And as they're closing in, loved ones, what you've got to understand is that the promises of God have to be held fast. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to have you read it, but I'd encourage you to go read Psalm 54. Uh, This part of 1 Samuel 23, David wrote in response uh, in Psalm 54 about what's happening here. But God sovereignly sustains his people. Let me just say this. If God purposes to deliver us, he has no shortage of ways to bring it about, even if from our perspective we see none of them. Don't you ever forget that? Because God sovereignly sustains his people. And as we close, I just want to make sure that we have clarity on where we find ourselves and what's going on with David and that we're thinking rightly about this. Because while David's life is spared yet again, uh, it's not on to happily ever after for him. Saul goes home. David just moves on to the next cave. I mean, he's living off the grid, not by choice, but that's just where he finds himself. And yet in David, what do we find? We find a man who is foreshadowing what will also be true of Christ, but not just of Christ, loved ones, also this will also be true of you and I. It'll be characteristic of all the followers of Jesus. Uh, because what David is experiencing is what Jesus experiences and what we will experience. And it's that suffering will be characteristic of the life of those who choose to follow Jesus. And we have to be realistic about this. We have to have a clear perspective on this. Right? this Jesus says in John 15 that the world will hate you because they hate me. He talks about multiple times in the book of Acts how, how they're suffering and, uh, and the variety of ways of uh, being punished and, and threatened and all of that because uh, of their allegiance to Jesus. Why say this? Because in following Jesus, here's what you've got to understand, is that suffering and hardship, it's not optional. It's not for the really spiritual Christians. I mean, like, well, I'll just play JV and I won't do the suffering uh, spiritual stuff. I'll, ju- I'll just do JV Christianity. No, no, it doesn't work like that. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to experience suffering. That's the loved ones. Here's the crux of the matter. If our hope is in being comfortable, if our hope is in life being easy, then when suffering comes, and it will, we may be tempted to compromise our faith and to, pre- uh, to, uh, to, to compromise our faith in order to preserve our standing or our comfort. And God help us, we'd never do that. God help us, we'd never do that. Because what what you probably already know, but I'll just double down on it, is it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. It's going to get much worse. And maybe for some of you, you hear that, and and fear starts to well up inside of you, and you start to get anxious, and like, whoa, 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 what are we supposed to do about that? Here's the silver lining. As it gets worse... Jesus will get better. He will be more glorious. He will be more cherished. He will be more valued. And he will be more loved. 
right, as, the, as the, the hymnist said, the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's the silver lining. But loved ones, we've got to be honest. See, in David, his suffering preceded his glory. In Jesus, his suffering preceded his glory. And in our lives, our suffering will precede our glory. And so let us not waver, but live in confident trust that even in our suffering, God is sovereignly sustaining us. And as we hold fast to that, let us hold fast to God's word that is leading and sustaining us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father. God, we thank you for how your word, your word does your work. God, your word speaks your truth. God, your word accomplishes all that you want to be done. So God, we pray, God, we pray you'd help us to hear it, to respond to it, to know and to trust that you are leading and sustaining us. God, to hold fast to you, God, that, that we would live in this posture of submission where we're letting your word form us. God, where your word is, is, is guiding us and directing us, we're living in it, we're being strengthened by it. God, would we hear and see the warning and the danger of its absence in our lives? And God, we just pray you'd help us to be biblical Christians. Biblical in that it's characteristic of us to just be submitted to your word, uh, returning to your word, uh, following your word, because God, we are submitted to you because we love you, because we want to follow you. God, we thank you that your word sustains us. And we pray now, God, for the ability to trust and to follow it. We pray this in your name. Amen.